Hello, I'm Fred Stella, President of the Interfaith Dialogue Association. Welcome to another edition of Common Threads. Reincarnation. That is a subject that we have not broached on this program for probably well over a decade. And I kind of thought that, well, it's, it's about that time. Uh, recently, an academic paper, uh, actually a journal, came out called Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. And that led me to thinking, well, we should probably uh, dip our toes back in. And it just so happened that the editor of this academic journal was Dr. Jeffrey Long, who is a friend, a colleague, uh, and someone who knows a little bit about the subject. And when I say a little bit, I mean a whole lot. Uh, Dr. Long teaches at uh, Elizabethtown College's Religious Studies Department. He teaches courses on Hinduism, Buddhism, and Jainism, uh, as well as first-year seminar on Star Wars and Asian philosophy. He also teaches Sanskrit, comparative theology, and interfaith engagement. He's the author of three books and a wide array of articles on Hinduism, Indian philosophy, and religious pluralism. And he is a consulting editor for Sutra Journal. So we welcome to Common Threads, Dr. Jeffrey Long. Hello, Jeffrey. Hello. Thank you very much for having me. Certainly. I, I'm looking at your bio here. I just want to confirm. It says at the end that uh, he also likes cats. I, I'm assuming <laughs> we're talking about the animal and not the musical. Well, I like the musical too, but um, okay. the the animal primarily. Okay, very good. As as do I, as a matter of fact. I've got, <laughs> I got a couple of furries uh, uh, hanging around my house as well. Uh, so, uh, Jeffrey, now you are one of those uh, uh, interesting people, not unique, but perhaps, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, rare. You are a, an, an academic. Uh, you teach on Hinduism. And you are a practitioner of Hinduism as well, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. That's correct. This, this journal, however, which uh, you were kind enough to forward to me in electronic form, uh, this journal is not written just by people who are Hindu or Buddhist or Jain or any other religion that people might associate reincarnation with. It's written uh, uh, by people of, of a wide variety. I'm assuming uh, there might even be some pure secularists uh, who've contributed to the journal or, or, or uh, not. Yes. Yes, that's correct. There, there are people who are, are not of any particular religious background. Uh, there are a number of people like myself who are scholar practitioners in Hindu traditions, uh, and there, uh, there are a few uh, Christian authors also. And these, these Christians, uh, would you say that they uh, subscribe to the orthodox, uh, uh, small-o orthodox understanding of afterlife, uh, resurrection, etc.? Uh, for the most part, yes, for the most part. Uh, definitely um, one of the pieces uh, by Bradley Malkowski from University of Notre Dame is a critique of the idea of reincarnation, and uh, he's writing from a traditional Catholic perspective. And uh, there's also a piece which is uh, more of a historical piece, but it's about uh, Jesuits uh, in India back in the 1600s who were debating with Hindus on this topic, and it's expressing the, the kinds of arguments that those Jesuits uh, put forward 
word against the idea of, of reincarnation. And then, of course, we have articles uh, describing reincarnation from Hindu perspectives, uh, one which gets into Buddhist perspectives, and um, my own piece is uh, actually an argument for reincarnation. So uh, the idea of the journal was to encompass a wide range of points of view and not to give just one perspective, but to present the uh, the argument and the, the, the debate that is there uh, across different worldviews on this topic. And, and I will say to uh, people listening that this is not for the faint of heart. By that I mean it is an academic journal. It, this is yes. not something that was written for the general public, right? That, that's correct. That's correct. I, I, I tend to aim in my work to uh, be as clear as possible. I know academic writing can be intimidating to many, uh, but the primary audience for this was other scholars, uh, and that's that's reflected in, in the contents. Right. And I will say that of the pieces that I read, and I haven't read every single article, but I've read quite a few of them, uh, yours is quite clear. I wouldn't hesitate to give your article to uh, a non-academic. Uh, there are some that your head would hurt after the first couple of minutes, <laughs> especially of, especially those people who use Sanskrit terms, assuming that the reader uh, reads Sanskrit. Right, right, right. Uh, I can understand that. I can understand that. And I appreciate the compliment. Uh, I uh, teach undergraduates, uh, most of whom have no background at all with India or Hinduism or any of these traditions. So I think that has uh, given me a sense of uh, how to pitch things in a way, uh, present things in a way that is uh, um, a little more accessible. Uh, so uh, I, I appreciate your saying that. that I, I do aim for clarity in, in everything that I write even when I'm writing for a more technical uh, audience. Sure, sure. So let, let's uh, get into, okay, one more thing. I do want to make clear, you were the editor and a contributor. That's uh, correct. Okay, so we obviously don't have the ability to have every voice that participated in this uh, journal uh, right. here on, on air. But I suspect you're going to be very unbiased and very fair when when we start discussing uh, 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 the issue from other points of view that are different from your own, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. So, but so let's let's talk about your point of view. Um, okay. You you came to the Hindu Dharma uh, as a teenager. Was it, do I remember correctly? Well, it was a process. So, uh, it, which started in my early teenage years, um, maybe even a little bit preteen, uh, but uh, culminated in my mid twenties when I formally joined the tradition. But I would say that in a, in an informal sense, in terms of holding a worldview and following a spiritual practice, that yes, by my teenage years I was already uh, well on my way uh, into Hinduism. Um, it was not a, a quick and sudden change. Like I said, it was a it was a process probably about a 12-year process. Uh, I grew up in the Catholic tradition, and uh, for many years uh, I was uh, sort of trying to reconcile the various perspectives in my mind and uh, still be a good Catholic and uh, hold all of these various views, which are really views associated more with Hinduism. Uh, but then by the time I got to college and I studied theology at the University of Notre Dame, a very good Catholic university, and uh, I just realized that what I believed was so 
incompatible with the mainstream of of the church that if if I were to try to be a theologian or you know represent my views in a public way in that context, it really would not. Uh, work very well. It would not uh, be accepted. And uh, I also was feeling more and more drawn to Hinduism as a community. I I met Hindus. I um, got involved in meditation practice, and uh, I felt very, very comfortable in those satsangs in a way that I no longer felt uh, in my church environment. So it was a gradual process. It wasn't just overnight. But my basic worldview was in place, I would say, probably by high school. So there was one point in your life where you identified as a Christian, yes. yet maintained a belief in reincarnation. Correct, correct. That, was, that would probably, that would describe my high school years uh, very well. And from what I understand, there are a lot of people who would, would wear that label. Yes. Uh, 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 do, do you have any numbers on that, at least in the United States, people who maintain a uh, Christian, or uh, we could we could probably also go into uh, uh, Islam and and Judaism. But for right now, if any idea how many people profess a belief in reincarnation yet continue to identify uh, as say a Christian. The figures I have on belief in reincarnation in the U.S. indicate that about twenty percent of Americans believe in reincarnation, but that's not broken down by religious affiliation. However, uh, if we also look at the fact that the majority of Americans do identify as Christian, uh, I think it's fair to say that a sizable chunk of that 20% would be uh, Christians who believe in reincarnation. And in fact, reincarnation uh, is not a new belief in, in Christianity. There are um, many uh, records of uh, cases in uh, the early centuries of the church of uh, um, figures who clearly professed a belief in reincarnation and did not see any incompatibility between that view and being Christian. It was only around the 5th century or so uh, that the belief was specifically condemned by the Church as something that uh, Christians should not accept. Um, But many early Christians did believe in in rebirth. So can you tell us how they were able to rectify the, the belief in a physical resurrection of one body that would live eternally in heaven with reincarnation. Well, I think this uh, concept of, re- of, of resurrection uh, has developed a lot through the centuries. And if you look at some of the early Christian writings, it's not immediately obvious that the resurrection of the body necessarily refers to uh, the physical body as we know it today. Uh, so uh, one of the early Christian authors who believed in reincarnation, uh, Origen, who is uh, one of the uh, first Christian theologians, he lived around the second century or so, um, He, uh, one of the views that is uh, attributed to him is the idea that the resurrected bodies would be spherical in shape, because coming from a Greek cultural perspective, according to Greek philosophy, the sphere is the most perfect shape. So our resurrected form would be a form indicative of a spiritualized perfection, and so they would be spherical. So when we think of, when Christians today sort of sitting in the pews think of the resurrection, uh, they don't typically think of spherical 
forms rising up uh, into the heavens. They, they have a far more of, a, of an idea of something like this physical body that we inhabit now, but probably in um, a, a healthy state, a youthful state. Um, the term that one, someone, some, one sometimes sees in, in Christian theology about the resurrected body is that it will be glorified, and it's not entirely clear what glorified means, but there is definitely a suggestion that it will be free from death and free from any other kind of imperfection. So um, that particular view uh, is not, you know, again, it's not obvious how that could be reconciled with reincarnation, which is a very different concept where uh, the soul is uh, dwelling in many bodies, uh, you know, serially over the course of a progression. You know, a body passes away, the soul moves on into another body and another and another. And uh, this resurrection concept might be, if if there's an attempt to reconcile the two, um, like what Origen did, you, you might see the idea that at the culmination of this process of rebirth, when you attain what Hindus would call moksha or liberation, then the form you inhabit is this perfected sort of glorified form. But it's not specifically tied with any one physical body that you inhabited during uh, a lifetime. And it's interesting, if you look into Hindu traditions, there are some Hindu texts, for example, in the Vaishnav tradition that talk about how uh, when uh, when one achieves moksha, one goes into a heavenly space called Vaikuntha and dwells with Krishna, the personal form of God for eternity. And the form in which one dwells is a kind of perfected body. So it's not entirely unlike uh, some of the early Christian concepts of what the resurrected body might be like. But it's very different from how Christian theology eventually developed. The the Catholic theology, for example, that we know today, uh, it is quite emphatic that it's the same body that one inhabits during one's lifetime is the body that is transformed or glorified or transfigured uh, into the resurrected form. And there's really no room for reincarnation in, in that particular view. But Christians haven't always held that view. Uh, the Christian theology got worked out through centuries of debate, and church councils were held, and uh, the merits of different perspectives were were uh, discussed, and eventually the community settled on the perspective, which we now define as, as you said, small o Orthodox Christianity. But uh, it, that didn't emerge fully from the beginning. It, it was something that that was that developed gradually, and in fact, we now know from the discoveries at Nag Hammadi in Egypt in the middle of the 20th century, that uh, there was a great variety within Christianity. If you look at the Gnostic uh, traditions of Christianity, uh, reincarnation was a common belief, as well as a variety of different views of what resurrection would entail and what it would mean, uh, and so on. So uh, out of all that variety and debate eventually emerges uh, what we know as, as Christianity. It, it didn't just spring fully formed from the mouth of Jesus right right into uh, the world. It was a, a long process of, of debate and discussion. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Common Threads on WGVU-FM. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today is Dr. Jeffrey Long from Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, and we're talking about the Religion Journal entitled Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. Now, like all doctrines, clearly reincarnation uh, is not monolithic. You have many different views. Uh, let's, let's discuss some of those. Now, 
one of the one of the views that is very popular. Now, I'm not saying popular in terms of belief necessarily, but popular in at least uh, people being aware of. Mm-hmm. Is that view of reincarnation where you're walking down the street, you get hit in the head with a brick, and you wake up a mosquito? Uh, juxtapose that to the understanding that if you get hit in the head with that brick, you're m- going to wake up as a zygote <laughs> at some <laughs> point. You know, you're going to be a human being. Again, can can you you talk about those those two views? Sure, sure. Yeah, there are there as you say, there are a variety of views about reincarnation, and uh, even if we just confine ourselves to the Indian traditions, there there are a variety of views. And uh, as you say, um, it's very commonly held in uh, Hinduism, Jainism, um, and some forms of Buddhism that uh, the what we call the soul uh, really has no species. It's not a human. Uh, phenomenon that soul is pure consciousness, and every living being has some amount of consciousness. And so, um, based on that perspective, <clears throat> the soul can take on whatever form is appropriate for its further evolution and growth, uh, or the way that the terminology is usually used in India, uh, based on its karma, based on the effects of its past actions. And so a soul that is in human form in one lifetime could conceivably be uh, taking on a very different form in the next lifetime. And in fact, uh, there's some perspectives according to which uh, human rebirth is a relatively rare thing. And so uh, this why this is why it's very important to pursue one's spiritual development in human form. Uh, sometimes the question is raised, well, if you believe in rebirth, you might postpone spiritual development. You might say, well, I'm going to have a good time in this life, and then I'll worry about my spirit uh, in the next life. Uh, and in response to that, some Hindu traditions will say, well, you might not be human again for a very long time, so uh, you should use the advantages that come with the human form to uh, perform meditation, uh, develop ethically, spiritually, and, and so on. Um, you have other points of view uh, in the Hindu tradition especially uh, that see uh, reincarnation as very closely tied to an evolutionary process so that uh, the form that the soul one take that, that one soul takes uh, is a part of a long learning process and on the assumption that the human form is uh, has certain advantages that other living forms don't, uh, the idea would be that once you've reached the human form, uh, unless you do something particularly egregious, you're going to continue to be reborn in human form uh, for the remainder of the process. Or uh, in some versions, there are forms even higher than the human form. Uh, there are beings called devas in the Indian traditions, sometimes translated as gods, or you can think of them as angelic beings, but they're very highly evolved souls who have very long lifespans and all kinds of powers, and they uh, sort of preside over the world and, and help other beings on the path. And uh, so in, in a future existence, one might be in one of those forms uh, also. So there are a variety of views. Uh, and then there are some traditions and some perspectives in which, uh, no, you're a human being and that's it. And the soul comes back uh, in human form and, and that's all it does. And uh, all of those perspectives exist. Now, this has been explained to me before. But I would like you to explain it to me now, 
and do me a favor, talk to me like I'm six years old. Because <laughs> otherwise, it ain't going to work. Okay. <laughs> All right. So both Buddhism and Hinduism acknowledge the doctrine of reincarnation in, in a variety of forms, as we just said. But, right. Okay. The Hindu would say that the soul is that which leaves the body and at some point in the future will take on another body. The Buddhists kind of sort of say the same thing, but they don't use the S word. Right. They don't believe in a soul. So if they don't believe in a soul, what is it that was Charlie in one lifetime and Harry in the next? Okay, well, I hope it's okay if I say something a little controversial, um, because I think uh, the Buddhist perspective on this has been misunderstood a great deal, uh, even by some Buddhists, and that's the controversial part. I I don't want to claim to know more about someone's religion than they know themselves, and they'll have their own interpretation, and that's fine. But I'll say it this way. My understanding of the classical Buddhist position that one finds in Pali and Sanskrit texts uh, from India is not so much that there is no soul as that what we call a soul is actually a process. And the use of the word soul is uh, not recommended according to a Buddhist understanding because it leads us to think of the soul as a thing, uh, as an entity that is changeless and has certain features that are never altered. And from a Buddhist point of view, All phenomena, everything in our experience, including the soul itself, is a process. It is impermanent. It is a flow of discrete, individualized events. So if you think of a motion picture, like uh, the old-time films, uh, now everything's digital, but if if you think about like a motion picture reel, it's made up of many, many individual still photographs, which closely resemble but slightly differ from one another. And then when you run them at a high speed, it creates the impression of, of, of motion, of movement, and of a singular entity moving from one state of action to the next. And from a Buddhist perspective, uh, when we go deeply into meditation, when we uh, begin to perceive reality the way the Buddha perceived it, it's sort of like slowing down that film reel, and you can see the individual discrete moments that make up the flow of our experience. And so to refer to that whole process as a singular thing, from a Buddhist point of view, it runs the risk of turning the soul into an object, and then when we turn it into an object, we can feel attachment for it. We can have craving for it. And of course, attachment and craving are the root cause of all suffering, according to Buddhism and according to Hindu traditions. So uh, that's why the Buddhists prefer not to use the term soul. But my view is, uh, my interpretation of Buddhism is that it's a misunderstanding to say that Buddhists don't believe in a soul. Um, A soul is as real, or you could say as unreal, as every other object that we perceive. All objects are, in fact, processes, according to Buddhism. When you get down to the microscopic or the subatomic or the quantum level, everything is a flow, it's a vibration, and objecthood is a construct of our mind. And so the Buddhists apply that to the soul as well. And would you say that, uh, is this similar, in in terms of reincarnation, the doctrine of reincarnation, um, 
who's closer to whom? The the Jains to the Buddhists or the Jains to the Hindus? Or mm-hmm. are they in their completely in the left field altogether? Well, actually, I think they're, they're all quite similar, but they're using terminology in somewhat different ways. Um, I would say... I would probably put Hinduism in the middle on that spectrum with Buddhism on on one end and Jainism on the other, because uh, whereas the Buddhists will see the reality of the soul as, to some extent, a construct of the mind, uh, the Jain tradition is quite insistent that the soul is an entity. Uh, It even has extent in space. Uh, It's almost a material object, you could say. Um, It's not a material object. The the Jains distinguish between souls and non-souls, that is, uh, what you might call spiritual matter and uh, material matter. Uh, But uh, the souls in Jainism actually have an interaction with the physical world in a very direct way. Uh, Karma is understood in Jainism, uh, this mysterious force that makes our actions produce like reactions. Uh, According to the Jains, this is because karma is an actual physical substance that sticks to the soul. So uh, you could say, whereas the Buddhists tend to see the soul as an abstraction, uh, the Jains are in the other direction of seeing the soul as something very concrete. Uh, Jeffrey, we are close to the wire here at the, the end of our program, and I realize, we said at the beginning, that this really remarkable work, I have to say, the, uh, the, the journal is called Religion, and it's an academic journal, if, if people didn't hear us at the beginning. And uh, your uh, series of articles is entitled Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. And as we mentioned, this is an academic journal written for other academics. If someone is interested in the subject, but not an academic, not a, not a member of the academy, what would you recommend uh, for them to uh, investigate this further. Is there anything you wrote or um, anybody else? Well, I, I have a few articles uh, on this topic. Um, one really accessible work, uh, it doesn't go over the entire breadth and length of, of different perspectives on reincarnation, but uh, there is, uh, there's some fascinating work on the topic of past life memory by Dr. Jim Tucker at the University of Virginia. And he has published this in a very accessible form uh, in a book called Return to Life. And uh, in fact, I mentioned this in my own article because it really caught my eye when I became aware of his work. And I think that is a good entry point to the topic of reincarnation, because that's where you're getting the scientific perspective, that uh, there is this phenomenon of past life memory that is extremely difficult to account for uh, unless something like reincarnation is a real thing. Well, we will get into that scientific approach next week, Jeffrey, so I hope you can join us then. Very good. I hope so. Thank you, Fred. You've been listening to Common Threads here on WGVU. I'm Fred Stella, and with me today has been Dr. Jeffrey Long. He uh, teaches at Elizabethtown College in Pennsylvania, and he is a contributor and editor of the journal Religion, specifically the issue Perspectives on Reincarnation, Hindu, Christian, and Scientific. Please join us again next week here on Common Threads.